Well, good morning. Um, thanks for being with us this morning and starting off our sort of summer sermon series, um, which is going to be a series where we touch on lots of songs about redemption. And I'm really excited to, to preach and sort of kick us off because I love music. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, we're in Music City, so hopefully I'm not the only one out there who loves music. I heard some people, I'm not going to name any names, uh, like Michael, who were just blaring music when they came into the parking lot this morning. Um, I mean, we're, we're a music city. There's folks who work in the music industry. That we've got bona fide actual musicians, and, you know, many of whom are up here, lots of talent. They've got whole families that do music, like the Von Trapps. Um, I, I mean, it's, music is everywhere around us, and I love it. Um, at the beginning of the year, 2019, when I knew that we were doing Exodus, I mean, truly, as we were getting ready for Sunday school, every week I was listening to Bob Marley, uh, if you know the song Exodus, I sort of thought, well, we should just have that as like background music, the whole thing, right? I mean, it's movement, movement of people. And I was like, come on, let's do this. Um, I didn't get very far with the elders on that, <laughs> as you see. But nevertheless, I did, I did still manage to name today's song Redemption Song, another Bob Marley uh, song. So anyway, that, there's my homage to him. Um, but, you know, just this week I was reading reading some about music, and um, I don't know if you know this, but Apple is likely to discontinue iTunes. It's likely to shut iTunes down as more people shift to other apps like Spotify and Pandora. And I have to admit, I was, I was pretty sad about, about that. I, I sort of, you know, I had mixed feelings about this. Not so much because I was mad about all of the 99-cent purchases, that I you know, was going to lose from over the years. But it made me think of all the time I used to spend like making the perfect playlists. I don't know if any... You have to maybe be a certain age or within a certain age range to, for this to be really meaningful. But you know, used to spend a lot of time you know, doing a road trip with friends. You got a playlist for that. Right? You got um, a, a party or so, a birthday party or whatever. Uh, and so you got a playlist for that spend a lot of time doing that. And not just music in general, but specific songs, for me anyway, can become associated with things that happened in our lives. So I think it really, in some ways, when I was, you know, over-dramatize this, but when I was mourning the loss of, um, of iTunes, I think really what I was mourning was like the loss of some of those memories that were associated with, with those songs. I'll give you an example. When I was in college, I mean, many, most skits, I feel like ended with NSYNC's Bye Bye Bye. Like you couldn't have a skit that didn't it somehow weave in Bye 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 into it. Um, million, here's more of a global example, maybe. You know, millions of people around the world still think of the late Princess Diana when they hear the Elton John song, Candle in the Wind. Right? I mean, the, these two, the song and the event are, are just really linked. And songs don't even need to be what you'd call top quality musicianship, you know, to conjure up memories. And so, kids, um, I am sorry to tell you that 20 years from now, you're probably going to be walking in the grocery store and you're going to start thinking about 2019. And you go, well, why am I thinking about 2019? And then the music's going to fade and the lyrics will start. I'm going to take my horse to the old town road and ride 
till I can't no more. And you're going to go, oh, I know what that, that makes me think of 2019, right? I mean, these songs, they don't even have to be good songs uh, to, to make us think about memories. Songs have that kind of power. They can transport us to a certain time or a certain place. You can, they can be really hard to shake. And sometimes the whole purpose of a song is to help you remember a person or event. And so I'll give you a few examples of that. If, you know, there's a song, again, from, from kind of my teenage years, Missing You. It's about by Puff Daddy and Faith Evans, right? The point of that song was to remember the death of Biggie Smalls. That was a, it was a meaningful song, and that's the whole reason the song was, was written. Cecilia, if you're of a, a, a little older generation, by Simon and Garfunkel, right? Use the lyrics. You're breaking my heart. You're shaking my confidence daily, and now everybody's going to know it, right? And you're going to know it all the time, every time you hear that song. And on a more serious note, think about like the Star Spangled Banner, Right, the whole purpose of that song is to recall the traditions and the collective experiences of the United States of America. Right? This is what songs do. In today's text, it's a, it's a multi-purposed song. So what we're going to read today, it's often called the Song of Moses. And it is, first and foremost, it's a song of praise offered up to God. It reminds us of truths about God. And it was written not just to commemorate what did happen, but as a signpost right, to what was going to happen, towards things of lasting significance. So today we're going to look at this song. We're going to con- consider why it was written and what it reveals about God's character. And then we'll think about how, you know, given those truths, how we might respond to them. So before we get too far, let's take a look at, at some of the text. If, um, if you're new to Trinity or if you need a Bible and don't have one, there are Bibles at the end of the rows, and you're welcome to keep one of those, and that's our gift to you if you'd like it. Now, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Here's the word of God. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. This is the word of God. You can be seated. So as Matt mentioned last week, we're starting the summer series where we'll go into several songs of redemption, mostly from the book of Psalms. And today's text is obviously not from Psalms, it's from Exodus, but nevertheless, it's it's very much like a psalm in that um, it's written in verse, it's even sung by the people of Israel. And the song of Moses, I think, is a good bridge to get us to the next season of of sermons, and Matt Givens is going to continue that next week. So now, if you've been following along with the sermon series in 2019, you know that we started near the very beginning of the Bible, in in the book of Exodus. And as far as it goes, I think most of those stories are pretty well-known stories. Um, An Israelite boy named Moses is saved from death. He's adopted by Egyptians, the same people that eventually he's going to confront on behalf of the one true God, demanding that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, let my people go. Right? Some really iconic lines and stories. And there's some great narratives throughout Exodus, but one of the things that we really tried to stress during the sermon series is that this isn't a series of fables. 
about a hero named Moses. Right? Rather, this is a book that reveals something about God. Right? There should be no doubt that God is the hero of this story, that God is the one that orchestrated all these miraculous events and, and really what you might call a rescue of his people. God is going to get the glory, and he says as much. In chapter 14 of Exodus, the Lord is speaking to Moses on the eve of you know, one of the most dramatic events in history, the parting of the Red Sea. And the Lord says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, them, the Israelites, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And the Song of Moses is the culmination of praise that the Israelites offer for what God has done. And it accomplishes a few different goals that I'll use as the outline for the day. So if you're taking notes, there's a um, a place where you can do that on the back of your worship guide. And here's going to be kind of our outline for the day. So first, you know, the song reminds us that God deserves our praise. Second, this song helps us remember the truth about God. And it can reinforce those truths. And third, the song reminds us that we sing about what's in our heart, right? The things we love. All right, so I'll give them to you again so you can follow along. One, God deserves praise. Two, the song helps us remember the truth about God and it reinforces those truths. Three, we sing what's in our hearts. All right, so let me take just a few minutes to set the, the scene that was most immediate to uh, chapter 15 in the Song of Moses. So if you want to hear a deeper explanation of chapter 14, you can visit our website, and there's a sermon um, all about that. You can go through the whole series, etc. But I wanted to go over a few of the details. So after going through a series of back-and-forth conflicts between you know, Pharaoh and the Egyptians on the one hand and God and the Israelites on the other, the Israelites are essentially kicked out of Egypt. God has Moses lead them out of Egypt, where they've been enslaved, but he tells Moses to take this really circuitous route. It's got them wandering through the desert. At one point, the Israelites are so frustrated that they complain, what have you done? Why did you bring us out into the desert? It would have been better for us to keep serving as slaves back in Egypt than die out here in the wilderness. So the Israelites are in the desert. They're, they're pinned down, really, between the impassable Red Sea on one side and the Egyptian chariots are bearing down on them from the west. And this is a pivotal moment. And so I wonder if in that moment Moses was thinking about God's words that I just read a few minutes ago where he said, I will have glory over Pharaoh. Right? And, and I think if this was a movie this is where the, the music is starting to swell so that you know that something is happening. It's kind of the rising action. And you can picture the Israelites turning away from the sea and looking in the distance and they see the dust cloud that's being formed from the chariots that are, that are coming their way. And it's at that moment that Moses follows God's command. He stretches out his staff and the Lord drives back the waters of the Red Sea. Right? With such force that all the people of Israel, young, old, you've got some with animals and all their household goods, all the people, they are able to walk across on the seabed to the other side, to the other shore. Right Then, to top it all off, to make sure that victory is complete, when the Egyptian warriors pursue the Israelites, 
the Lord tells Moses to make that same action, right? Make the same motion with his hand and the staff and the waters rush back in and they swallow up both horse and rider. It's pretty dramatic. It must have been an amazing scene and it's memorialized in the song of Moses. Um, and, And Moses and his sister Miriam teach that song to the Israelites immediately after. Here's what they sing, and this comes from chapter 15, verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Right, so there you have it. That's, that's the, the gist of the story. The Israelites flee Egypt, and they're saved in dramatic fashion on the shores of the Red Sea. So now let's look at how Moses and the people of Israel respond to this amazing rescue. All right, so here's your first main bullet point if you're taking notes. that songs of praise are appropriate responses to what God has done. And a simple way to put it, as I mentioned, is that God deserves our praise. So let's, it, let me examine just for a minute, just kind of call it out, how different the song, this song is from other passages about the Exodus. So many, many scholars believe that the song that's documented in, in Exodus chapter 15 was actually written before the rest of the book. And that's based in part on some of the specific language and the tenses that are used, but also the style and the chronology within the chapter. And, you know, the rest of Exodus is written in prose. It's a pretty historical narrative, right? But the first verse in this chapter makes it clear, and we read it together, but the people began singing these actual words immediately after crossing the Red Sea. Right? So, so what that means, just to put a point on it, is that someone, likely Moses and his sister Miriam, they had to commit these words to memory and share them with their fellow Israelites. And the words that they documented, it, they weren't merely sort of facts and um, stated in a, a, an antiseptic way. It was poetry. It was something that the people could sing and remember together. Scholars think that the words from that get repeated by Miriam in verse 21 served as a chorus of sorts. These are the verses that we read together. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. In just that verse, we get a lot of key insights. First, God is the prime mover. He's the agent of change. The Israelites are the benefits of all these actions, but they could no more have rescued themselves than I could cause this building to uproot itself and relocate on the moon. That's how small the Israelites' role was in this story. God did the work, and the others were witnesses to it. And so they acknowledged that he has triumphed greatly and gloriously. Right, the other insight is that the Israelites are not just singing about God, but they are singing to God, right, simultaneously. Singing about God, or frankly what that is, is another um, mode of theology, right, the study of him. Instead, the Israelites are doing something different. They are moved to sing to him. This is a different posture altogether, I think. When they sing to God, they are worshiping. And that's really what should be the goal of theology, to, to worship this God, this mighty God, not just to study him. 
Moses is so thankful for what happened that he can't wait to write about it later. He stops in the moment and he chronicles his appreciation. Right? He tells everyone, both probably because he doesn't want to forget the words and because everyone else he knows feels the same way. There's such an overwhelming and universal appreciation for what they've just been through. To, to close this off and about how this song of praise really underscores what a momentous occasion this was, I'll point out something from earlier in the Exodus story. So when the Israelites are still in Egypt and Pharaoh them leave, the final act, the one that caused even hardened Egyptians, you know, their, their hearts to sort of soften and plead with Pharaoh, hey, can we just like be done with this? Can we let the Israelites go? It was, it was the 10th plague, if you recall that. The firstborn of every Egyptian family and even the firstborn animals were killed, all according to God's will. By contrast, the Israelite firstborn were spared. And do you know what the reaction was on the part of Moses and his people, at least what we have documented? Apparently nothing. Like we don't, we don't have any documentation that, that there was singing, no singing, no, no praise in this uh, same kind of manner. They simply pack up their things and it is time to leave. Now I'm sure that the Israelites were thankful, right? Super thankful that their firstborn children were spared, of course. But there is no indication that in that moment that they had time to let their guard down. But by the time they crossed the Red Sea, miracle after miracle had stacked up and their only response was literally to break into song and offer up praise to God the one and only who could have authored this story, right? It's like being at a concert and there have been rain delay after rain delay after rain delay and finally your favorite artist takes the stage and it's like, yes, that's, that's why we're here and everybody knows every word and they're all singing in unison. Praise and worship is a great response. It might be the only response, the best response to having witnessed God's amazing actions. But they could have just repeated something like praise God or hallelujah. Instead, they used this song to document some of what God did. So here's the second point. That not only were they praising God, which is a big deal and a, a worthy thing, a valuable thing. But they were remembering some of the truths about God himself. So here's our second main point. Songs help us remember things, right? I, I think that's right. I think that's right, but I don't know um, if everyone would agree. So let's try this. What letter, and kids can play along, what letter comes after the letter O? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. You just think about that. What letter comes after the letter of O? I know, and some of you may deny it because you've got like PhDs and whatnot, but I know that some people in here, when they went, what letter comes after O went, L-M-N-O, ah, right, P. Right, because that's what we do. Like That song, the alphabet song, it's important. There, songs help us remember things. There's a reason that our children here at Trinity Church learn the Heidelberg Catechism written in 1563 by putting the text to music. 
And I want to say right now, I am so thankful for our catechism teachers. And um, if you are a parent of a child under the age of three, your, your turn's coming. Your turn is coming, and very soon you will have these uh, catchy songs in your head all the time. Right, but what are we doing? Really, we're imprinting those truths on our kids' hearts, we hope. We're giving them answers um, to some of life's most important questions. And, and putting those words to music um, is a really helpful means of doing that. And in this case, the Song of Moses would help the Israelites remember what God did for millennia to come. This song gets quoted throughout the Bible. Scholars think it was an enormously popular, maybe a, a patriotic-type song. It's, it's quoted even by the Apostle John in Revelation, so the final book of the Bible. And even more important, while the song recalls what just happened, the words also reveal key features about God's character. And so I want to explore a few of those key features that we're meant to remember by this song. The first of God's traits and there will be six of them. The first of God's traits that I'll call your attention to is, is perhaps the most obvious one, and that is his power. Right? The song commemorates his power in verse 6 when the people sing, Your right hand, O God, glorious in power. And frankly, I think after hearing the story, I can't imagine anyone sitting there failing to acknowledge just how powerful God is. Right? Who else could bend nature to his will like that? Nobody. Two more traits are revealed in verse 11. It's, a, it's kind of a rhetorical question. It comes in verse form. It says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. And so the, the first trait that comes out of there, it's God's supremacy over and, and among other so-called gods and powers. So rem remember that much of the first part of the book of Exodus, it can be seen as the God of Israel sort of outperforming Egyptian sorcerers. Right, so at God's command, something you know, seemingly amazing would happen, like when Moses' brother, Aaron, he throws his staff to the ground, and it becomes a snake. Some of you may remember that story. And what happens next? Well, the Egyptian magicians, they do the same thing. They throw their sticks. Their sticks become snakes. And what happens after that? Aaron's snake eats the other snakes. Right? And there's many instances like that where, where the point is to show that there may be lots of other so-called gods that entice us and seduce us, but ultimately they are no match for the one true God, the God of Israel. Who is like you, O Lord, the song asks. And the answer to that question, no one. There's nothing like you. He is supreme. The other trait that comes from that verse is his holiness. The song says he is majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds. And, and for a deeper explanation of holiness, uh, I would point you to our sermon series uh, from, I guess, a few years ago on judges. But for today, I'll say that this trait, <clears throat> it highlights the fact that God is set apart from everything else. He is unique he is perfect. He is pure. This is the God who says of himself, I am. That's a phrase that no one else can, can claim. I am. God is not dependent upon anything else 
to define him. Right? And, and what a good thing that is, because my imagination is far too limited. My imagination, boy, it's so limited in scope that if, if God's attributes were based on what I can think of, we'd be in real trouble. But he's not dependent on us. He is special in ways that we don't even have language for, and so we call him holy. The next trait revealed is the fact that God is eternal. If you take a a second look at part of verse 3 and then verse 18, the song says, The Lord is his name. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And so the song reminds the Israelites that God has always been and he will always be. He's unchangeable. He's not going anywhere. This means that even though the song was written thousands of years ago, there are implications for us today, and we're going to circle back around later this morning. The penultimate characteristic is one that I think can be hard to swallow, and so I want to spend a little time on it. And that's that God is just. And I know that the concept of justice lands on people differently. Some of you will hear that, and, and you may think of the legal system. And you may think of, you know, 12 people on a jury convicting or exonerating someone. And even within that example, there might be divergences of opinion. Because we know that many times the justice system is far from objective. Right? Others might think about the phrase social justice. It's hard to go anywhere these days without hearing calls to action for social justice. And that, frankly, is a phrase that can be really hard to define. The justice that I'm referring to is seen in this song in verses 6 and 7, among other places. It's, it's where Moses writes, Your right hand, O Lord, it shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. This justice you might also call wrath. Yes, the God of Israel is a God of just wrath. Something I didn't catch until I was preparing for this sermon is that this passage, it's an allusion to an experience that the Israelites had when they were still enslaved in Egypt. There was a time when Pharaoh was being really obstinate. He wouldn't let the Israelites go into the desert and worship. Instead, and he, he went the other direction, and, and he increased their productivity requirements. He says, you've got to make even more bricks. But not only did he increase the load, he refused to supply them with the straw that was necessary for making the bricks. Right, so Exodus chapter 7, it recounts this, and it says, that the people were scattered throughout the land to gather the stubble for straw. And the stubble, it's the, it's the small sort of un... Uh, uncut uh, you know, stalks of grain that are left sticking out of the ground after the good parts have been harvested. That's what they had to do. They had to go and collect the stubble. Well, now the tables have turned, and Moses sings, you send out your fury, and it consumes them like stubble. Right, so what am I saying? Am I saying that we're to rejoice in other people's destruction? Right? Is this the first sanctioned instance of the Germans call schadenfreude, you know, taking pleasure from another person's misfortune? No, not at all. And here's why. The Lord is, as the song says in verse 3, and there's no getting around it, the Lord is a man of war. 
but his is a holy war, and his wrath is just. This longtime pastor uh, from Canada, he's, he's no longer alive, Mariano de Ganji, he put it this way, he said, The wrath of God is not a vehement, irrational, vindictive, arbitrary, or capricious venting of some supernatural spleen. It is the manifestation of the repugnance of a holy God against all who defile, disrupt, and destroy the world that he has made. When God exacts his justice on the Egyptians, it's because they sought to defile, disrupt, and destroy. These are murderous slaveholders. Don't get it twisted. Pharaoh literally held himself out as having the divine right to subject others to his will. The point is that God uses actions like swallowing up the chariots to set things right according to his purpose. To be sure, there's loss of life. But God's wrath, God alone, God's wrath is true justice. But of course, it's not justice and wrath that close the list of God's characteristics that are revealed in this song and celebrated. <clears throat> the last one is his love. In verse 13, Moses sings of God's steadfast love. And by that love, he leads his people and he redeems them. Now, I just said that God's wrath isn't motivated by the things that often motivates us. Things like jealousy and power and hate. If I'm honest, those words describe impulses that have caused me to lash out. Praise God that he is without those same impulses. Instead, everything that he did, everything he did for the Israelites up until this point, saving Moses, bringing the plagues, letting the angel of death pass over the Israelite firstborn, and finally casting the Egyptian horse and riders into the sea, all of it was born out of a deep love that he had for his people, the people he called his own. He promised to rescue them from captivity because he loved them, and he kept his promise. So those are some of the attributes that that can be known about God based on what he did for the Israelites back then. We see that he's powerful and supreme, he's holy and eternal, he's just and loving. And the song lists these truths that are good to remember. And and I think the repetition of it, it can also help reinforce these truths in time of despair. That might be for you, it might be for someone in your life. It's why so many organizations like schools and clubs, even teams have songs or anthems, right? Songs can empower you. Here's a, a bit of music trivia for you and from maybe one of the dark ages of music, the disco era. So in 1978, singer Gloria Gaynor, she suffered a major fall off stage. She awoke in the hospital and she was paralyzed from the waist down. The headlines read, The Queen of Disco is Dead. Imagine how that must have felt. Right? They're talking about you, they're talking about your career. <clears throat> It was after that, as she was regaining strength, that she recorded the song, I Will Survive. 
right, which now is one of the best-known pop songs of all time. She wasn't just performing that song for fans. Right? I mean, fans got down. But she wasn't just doing it for them. She was singing it to herself. It was meant to be a reminder, right? Because by singing, we often internalize the things that we sing. That's what the Song of Moses is meant to be. We can internalize some of these truths for ourselves. And I think there's a dark flip side to that too. And I want to tread lightly here because, you know, we're all, each of us susceptible to to different things. But I think we need to be really careful that the music we listen to doesn't reinforce things that lead us to sin. Here's what I mean. Some time ago, I, I mostly stopped listening to mainstream R&B. I just found it, frankly, to be so coarse, and often the language was so dehumanizing of women that I just knew it wasn't good for me, it wasn't healthy for me to have those phrases bouncing around in my head. That's just an example. And I'm not saying that all the music that you should listen to has got to be overtly you know, Christian music. But I would challenge you not to purposely fill your mind with ideas that cause you to cheapen God's creation. Right? Better to look to God's word for truth and for encouragement. There's one more truth about God that I want to mention, and it leads us into our final point of the day. Uh, the last truth revealed in this song is the fact that God's promises continue well into the future. And that's the truth that we can choose to make the new song of our heart. So the majority of the Song of Moses is about things that already happened, right? Overthrowing the adversaries, blowing the waters back, letting them come in, you know, etc. But the last stanzas, they shift. And, and, and we don't know if Moses knew what was happening, but they go into sort of a prophetic mode. And they are future-oriented. So Moses is documenting this stuff in real time. This is not revisionist history. Verses 14 through 16 talk about the fear that seizes the people of various other nations and tribes nearby, the Philistines and the Edomites, the Moabites, the Canaanites. This isn't just the kind of chest-thumping that happens like when a boxer wins a fight and announces that he'll fight, you know, I'll fight anyone anywhere. This is a specific list of groups that in the years to come, the Israelites would in fact encounter on their way to the promised land where they would establish a dwelling place. Moses wouldn't even be around to witness all of these encounters. And so his words are a prophecy of what would happen because God is faithful to his word. For Moses, the crossing of the Red Sea confirmed that the work of the Passover was finished. Here's what I mean. During Passover, there was certain death hanging in the air. And in reality, you know, that, that cloud of death, it continued to hang over the Israelites for several days or even weeks as they were pursued through the desert by the Egyptians. But once he raises that staff and God pushes back the waters and he and the people march safely through to the other side, only to watch their enemies meet a watery grave, that's when Moses has this sense that the inevitable cloud of death has been lifted. Moses' song, I, 
these are poetic words. They're the words of gratitude that were on his heart after he had just gone through an experience of staring down certain death and being saved from it. At this point, the thing he most wanted to do was praise God for what God had done and for what he would do. The thing is, at the time, Moses couldn't even imagine the lengths that God would go to to rescue the people he loves. I said that that cloud of death seemed to hang over the Israelites. And to be sure, I mean, there was a very real threat of the Egyptian army coming after them. But the death that continued to pursue them, even after they arrived on the other side of the Red Sea, it's the same death that comes after us. We can't escape the fact that a real physical death is the just result of our sin. All of us. Paul's letter to the Romans, it says that none is righteous, not one single person, and the wages of this sin is inevitable death on earth and an eternal separation from God. But, but... Just like God made a way for the Israelites to pass from death to life, he makes a way for us. And the way, this way, is meant to become the object of our song. Before he was arrested and tried, crucified, Jesus told his followers this. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And soon after that, he died on the cross, like every other person put on a cross before him. But, and to kind of continue our musical theme, this is when the disparate songs of the musical come together, and at the end, you realize that all of the prior scenes are building up to this crescendo, and unlike those before him, Jesus doesn't stay in the grave. Right? He defeats death, and he doesn't defeat death in some gross zombie apocalypse way. He defeats death in an I'm so powerful I can overcome natural death kind of way. In an my God is bigger and truer and mightier than any other false God kind of way. Jesus comes back to life because justice dictated that death hand over the only blameless man who ever lived. Jesus offered himself up for the same reasons that God saved the Israelites in the first place, because he loved his people. Moses didn't know it. He didn't know it, but when he closed the song by writing about the sanctuary on the mountain and the Lord reigning forever, he wasn't just writing about a temple on some mountain far off in the Middle East. He was writing about a time when all the people of God would come together and worship in a new Jerusalem, a time when all those people from different countries and different era, different languages and backgrounds, all the voices would blend into one and join in the chorus of songs that praise our holy God. And to be sure, the people who surrounded the Israelites were not singing. No, the song tells us that they were anxious. They trembled in fear because they didn't have the assurances that come when you know that God is leading you to something greater. That assurance is built on faith, and it's confirmed by witnesses to what he's done. And here's the thing. I was just like one of those people once, without assurance, singing the same songs as the rest of the world, 
We all were. And if you're here with us today and you still are singing an old song, what wouldn't you give? What wouldn't you give to have the freedom to rejoice in song like Moses and Miriam did back then? To have the weight of death lifted and know that you're a part of God's chorus. The good news, the good news of the gospel today is that today, just like back then, death has been defeated by Jesus Christ. This song, it's a free gift waiting for all of us to hear it. And it's always streaming. Let's pray. Lord, there is no other God like you. Over and over, you have shown yourself to be more than worthy of our praises. No one but you could have rescued the Israelites from slavery. And none but Jesus can lead us to our own valley of sin and into your loving arms. Would you grant us your spirit that we might pursue holiness as you have called us to be holy? Instead of seeking our own forms of justice, would you help us to extend the same grace that you show us? By continuing to love us, even though we didn't deserve it, we do nothing to deserve it. And finally, would you help us to remember your faithfulness? Meet us in our moments of doubt and distress, just like you did for the Israelites on the shore of the Red Sea, just like you did for the disciples of Jesus as they waited for the resurrected Christ. Be with us now. We need you. Amen.